0: went down to Weatherall studio on a Friday to give him the tracks because there was a Love From Outer Space party that weekend. And apparently on Monday, he got a call from Weatherall saying these were the
1: biggest tracks of the night. And then you put on Drone Logic and almost instantly, I was like, fuck, and this is exactly what I want to listen to in this very moment. There was something about the immediacy and kind of the size and the sound of that, even through the shitty car speakers. Get out the Belvedere, get, yes. get them out, get them a table, get the... Daniel Avery, come on in. All I need.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Death With The Record. This week, we're looking at Daniel Avery's 2013 album Drone Logic. I'm hosting this podcast, so Jamie, we thought we'd mix it up a little bit, and you tell us about the music that came out in 2013.
1: Well, for a change, it's actually a year we probably both remember fairly well, I would imagine, yeah. seeing as we were actually of an age where we, you know, could speak and actually engage with music <laughs> in any way at all. There were some big hip hop releases. First off, uh, Chance the Rapper's Acid Rap came out. Jesus of course, as well. And then oh, yeah. nothing was the same, which is probably the last album of, of Drake's that I that I really really liked. The other really, really big album that jumped out at me was Daft Punk's Random Access Memories, and I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware about this, Ollie, but a single from this album um, that I hadn't actually heard before has been recirculating <laughs> on Twitter, and apparently it's going to be the sound of the summer. It's, oh, it's <laughs> called Get Lucky, lad. Actually,
0: <laughs> anyway, yeah, no,
1: I've not heard of that one. Enough of that. In forms of a lyric, just to to kind of shout out to Rakeem and the man who gave the name to the podcast. Have you got have you got one for that, Ollie?
0: Yeah, I've got a little one. I was thinking. Over the course of this episode, we're probably going to be talking about dance music culture and club culture a little mm-hmm. bit. So I've got one from As The Rhyme Goes On. One. Look around and see how the
1: no, so that's kind of like, that is Daniel Avery, is it? Yeah, basically. All right, I've, I've kind of gone a similar route. I've gone with a, a, uh, a line from when i be on the mic.
0: Love that bar. It's
1: a great bar. You might be wondering what DJ I'm talking about. Is it Daniel Avery, the DJ this episode is about? And in answer to that, it's not at all. I'm, I'm, of course, talking actually about myself and Ollie when we DJ under our <laughs> moniker Big Ol' and Little J. So, if you want to book us to go B2B, then contact us on the socials death at for the record at yeah, gmail.com. Yeah, for the record at gmail.com. We really need to set up a bigol.littlej at gmail.com email yeah, account. Need to start taking things a bit more seriously. Anyway, back to you, Host and Ollie. I'm sorry for that little sortie into yeah the mind of 2013, Jamie.
0: So, yeah, that was 2013. Moving on to Drone Logic. Avery himself hails from Brighton. But he made the album whilst he was living in London and funnily enough he actually rented a shipping container down on the banks of the river thames to make the album which Mm. i don't know about you but that kind of fits with maybe some of the industrial aesthetics that you can hear in the album certainly yeah one of the things that does make me laugh is whenever i've seen him speak about this record he always says that he could see the financial district from whereabouts, uh, where, where he was making so, the album. So was he on the
1: South Bank of, not the South Bank, but the South Bank of the Thames and then along a bit towards kind of East London or?
0: I think so. Yeah. Uh, but it's just like, it, it seems really strange to me because when I think of Naive Response or Drone Logic or Free Floating, I'm not necessarily thinking about Canary Wharf yeah, Deutsche or Bank. HSBC. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Inspiration comes from everywhere, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, basically the genesis of the album itself was that Avery originally wanted To make some songs that Andrew Weatherall might have played at one of his A Love from Outer Space parties. Mm. So, for those of our listeners that are unfamiliar with Weatherall, he was a legendary British museum that very sadly passed away earlier this year. Mm. Like, he was a key DJ in the Acid House era. Um, he was also a successful producer in his own right, so I'm, I'm sure you've listened to Screamadelica by Primal Scream and Jamie.
1: Yeah, I mean, as a as a remix yeah. and a producer, he's like formidable, isn't he?
0: Yeah, that was probably his best known work. But are you, so are you familiar with his A Love from Outer Space parties? Were you?
1: I wasn't. You mentioned this
0: to me the other day. So there's something about the BPM you were saying. Yeah. So it's basically it, it was him and another guy called Sean Johnston, and they'd they play all night. Uh-huh. But the main idea was that the BPM never went over 120. Too. Okay. So it's quite slow yeah. by techno standards, but then, in Avery's words, really druggy and has a real pulse to it. Mm. And basically, before he started writing Drone Logic, he'd made Water Jump and another song, I think, to go on a fantasy EP. Uh-huh. And he was really, really happy with what came out. Went down to Weatherall studio on a Friday to give him the tracks because there was a Love From Outer Space party that weekend. And apparently on Monday, he got a call from Weatherall saying these were the biggest tracks of the night. Wow! And I think as soon as he put the phone down, he knew he was making an album, and he knew that Water Jump was going to be on it. Mm. And, you know, if someone that you've looked up to your whole life, like Weatherall, has listened to your track once or twice and gives you that kind of endorsement, then, you know, it's probably a sign that you're heading in the yeah. right-ish direction. Definitely, definitely. One, one thing it made me wonder was when... Can you you remember the first time that you listened to any songs off
1: this album? Like, were you in a club or were you somewhere else? Well, actually, I can remember remember the exact time I heard the track Drone Logic. I'm not sure about the album as a whole, because I think I might have come across some of the other songs, as you say, in a club or or elsewhere, but the track Drone Logic, and I want to see if you remember this as well as I do, so it was when me and you were, we were driving away from the Grand Canyon on the way to Las Vegas, kind of through the desert. Some pretty amazing right. landscapes surrounding us. And I was driving, so you had the Orcs, and we were taking it in turns to do vice versa. And then you put on Drone Logic, and almost instantly I was like, fuck, like, this is exactly what I want to listen to in this very moment. There was something about the immediacy and the, kind of the size of the sound of that, even through the shitty car speakers, that felt perfectly <laughs> matched to the, the vastness of the landscape. And I don't want to put too fine a pint on it. But for me at least, that song and techno generally has always had something quite like bass and, and, and carnal about it. And it fit in really yeah. well with the scene. For me, it was the, it was the perfect time I could, have, I could have heard it. I'm not sure if you remember that particular story or if you remember I heard, yeah, where I you don't, heard I it. Yeah, I don't
0: remember that at all, but I'm glad, I'm glad that it had such an effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you remember when you first heard the album in, in your own world as well?
0: I mean, yeah, Drone Logic was a bit of a, it became a bit of a reference point for me and my friends. Because hmm. it felt like one year we were seeing bands and then the next year we were seeing DJs and it genuinely was that start. Yeah, I think it would be easy for me to pass this off as just something that happened to me and maybe one or two other people. But when it happens to a wider group, it makes you wonder maybe what was the album doing that it's turned us onto something new. Yeah, And one of so I've been speaking to my friends about it and one of them described it as a coming of age album. And I think that kind of gets at what this album did to our friendship group quite nicely. We were exploring yeah. different spaces. We were, this was, you know, we're at 18, 19, we're hanging out in nightclubs, in bars, we're hearing different music. And yeah, it just makes me think of being like younger in Manchester, surrounded by a pretty cool electronic scene. But yeah, I imagine things must have been a bit more barren in Peterborough. <laughs> and, uh, maybe Daniel Avery wasn't playing down the local Wetherspoons, so maybe you weren't as lucky as I was.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting you say it was like a coming of age. And for me, as you say, growing up in fairly rural Lincolnshire, club music, or at least seeing DJs, it literally wasn't even an option. The electronic music that I was into was a lot more geared towards, and I kind of hate this term, but the IDM side of things. Basically, I liked electronic music albums. I didn't like DJs. And to be, honest, to be more accurate, I liked Aphex Twin and Brian Eno, and that was about it. <laughs> to me, DJs represented, and Daniel Avery said something similar of how he came into electronic music. But DJs, to me, represented David Guetta and Skrillex, basically that kind of thing. And I was very, very snobby and dismissive of it. The point when I was put onto electronic music was a lot later than than you, perhaps, but. I'm interested, because Daniel Avery has said, as you as as mentioned, that he's always having kids or teenagers come up to him and say, you know, I didn't like techno, and then I heard your album, and then it you know, put me onto it, and it changed the way I mm. thought about music. What qualities do you think that that record has that made it this way? Do you think it just coincided perfectly with a generation that was primed for for that kind of music or what?
0: I think it definitely ties to the age, as you're saying, mm. that we were perfect at that moment. Mm. But I think more than anything, there must have been certain alternative sounds on the record that I was subconsciously picking up on. Yeah. Because I listen back to it now and large parts of it still sound like quite a heavy techno record. Yeah. There are certain alternative elements that I'm sure we're gonna come on to discuss. Mm. That maybe I didn't consciously think about at the time, but it made it it made it
1: click. Yeah. Basically. Well, I mean, because if you think about it in the in this coming of age kind of frame, it's almost like the album is Daniel Avery's coming of age into electronic music. Right. This is his first yeah. album when he's come from this indie space. So it makes what makes a lot of sense that you know one man's experience of making that journey would then also resonate with a whole generation of people who would go mm-hmm. on to make that journey through the music. Like, it, it, yeah, it is perfect the way it all lines up. Yeah. I mean, speaking um, speaking about the music obviously
0: the name of the podcast is Death With The Record. So let's move on to the second segment, the most important bit, which is the music itself. So what do we think are the best moments on the album? Are there any skippable tracks? How does the album feel as a whole when you listen to it? So starting with you, Jamie, one thing that we've mentioned so far is the range of influences Mm. that went into making the album. So is Techno, Shoe Gaze, Acid House, Drone Music, among others. When you first listened to the album, which of those elements stood out to you
1: so when i first heard it i think the notion that techno and acid could be really danceable struck me as like completely alien and I, I was really i was really kind of in awe of it so that songs like naive response or all i need or need electric like they were they were really heavy but they were also I'm not sure why I'm about to use this word, and I'll probably regret it. But they're almost kind of groovy. Do you know what I mean? That like they're really no, no. I I know exactly. Yeah, what I'm they're really, really danceable. So I think that was definitely the first thing that stood out to me. It kind of instantly made me realize, oh wow, you know, electronic music is not David Guetta. That's maybe a side of it that has been commercialized from these communities where it was really making amazing stuff. Later on, at least now, when I think about this album, the stuff that jumps out to me is is the shoegaze elements, mm. you know, the fact that Daniel Avery would use specific guitar effects pedals to recreate the droning sounds of like my bloody valentine or spaceman three that is speaking my language a lot more than conversations about how like a roland tb 303 created the acid bass lines you know what i mean but what what stood out to you pretty similar things you know i I think there's a definite
0: human soul to this album Mm. that comes about because of i've read for example that avery used a lot of distortion pedals a lot of guitar Mm. pedals and you can definitely hear those kind of band-like influences on the album even even though this isn't a kind of wacky mashup of rock and rave (laughs) the other thing that struck me is something that you've already mentioned is that this album kind of opened me up to the idea of a conceptual electronic album because as you say at school electronic music to me was twats Bluetoothing skrillex tracks to each (laughs) other which i just had yeah, which I just had absolutely no time for at yeah. all. And then I think the other thing that's perhaps struck me a little bit was just the variety of songs. Like this mm. wasn't all just strictly club music. There were ambient moments as well. And I'm just not sure that if the whole album had been drone logic or naive response or that type of hard acid sound, whether... It would have been quite as acceptable or presentable to myself when I was eighteen. Yeah. You, I think you like electronic music, but I don't think you'd say that you're constantly listening to it or techno. Yeah, right? definitely. Yeah. So, how do you feel about those softer moments, the
1: more ambient moments on the album? Do you think they're needed for the listener as a whole? I think the thing with ambient moments sometimes it's like they can almost like be put in an album for the sake of it. A producer or yeah, yeah. a musician feels like, oh wow, I've got to a point where the energy needs to be brought down. Let me just shove an ambient moment in there. But I think on this album, it it justifies itself. I think obviously they needed to break up the the tracks and I think the first five tracks in this album are all pretty fucking heavy but then Platform Zero comes in and even though it's a nice ambient track it's also just like a lovely melody it could be on a soundtrack for a Safdie Brothers movie or something like that. It has a, a film soundtrack vibe to me I think it's important to note that Daniel Avery didn't see the ambient and big techno tracks as any different. He sees them as you different methods to do the same thing. Mm. And he thinks of a kick drum as being warm in the same way that an ambient synth is warm. He doesn't see them as being as, a, as abrasive or exclusive. So I think that the ambient moments are necessary and also they justify themselves.
0: They're definitely not just superfluous, I think.
1: Moving on to the actual songs themselves. Mm. Have you got any you got any favorite tracks on the album? I think my favorite track on the album just flat out is a simul wreck i think it has my favorite simp sounds it's so hypnotizing and i think it's a song that works on the album it would work in a live setting it would work if you're listening to it through headphones like on a plane taking off it's such a versatile and, and beautiful song and i think that one stands out for you as well right, oh
0: I think that track gets slept on so much. Mm. I, I think it says a lot about Avery as a producer, that it's kind of tame by the acid standards that are set, especially in the first half of the album. Mm. And it's not quite as euphoric, perhaps, as the last two songs, Knowing Will Be Here and New Energy but it's still one of the best songs on the album. Yeah, That's really impressive to me, the fact that he can do that.
1: Yeah, the, the versatility is, is astounding. So what what other tracks would be for you that, that jump out? I know we've spoken a little bit about Drone Logic, but
0: I think the first three songs, mm. Water Jump, Free Floating and Drone Logic, I think if I had to distill down my favourite kind of sound as, of Avery as a producer, then I'd be going with those three. Yeah. Drone Logic is just one of those songs that wherever I hear it, at a festival, at a club, wherever, I just lose my shit. <laughs> like if we, if me and you were ever on Desert Island Discs for services to podcasts, <laughs> then I'd probably end up taking that song.
1: It works, yeah, like the Grand Canyon on a, a desert island, drone logic would also go off. Yeah, nice. I, I kind of get that.
0: Even on like free floating, for example, you know, we were speaking earlier about how there's certain alternative sounds that mm. come through on the album. Mm. Obviously, there's a there's a really taut acid hook to that song. Yeah, yeah. But then there's large breakdown moments that sound really kind of shoegaze influenced mm. and drone influenced. A lot of the hi-hats, apparently, on the first few songs were played live, which I think you can really hear, because yeah. they don't sound perfectly quantized or perfected yeah. at all, which I quite like. Mm. So yeah, I think the first three songs are my favourite, but to be honest, I don't think there's a skippable song on
1: this album. Have you, have you got any more favourites? I think and it's quite an appropriate ending, I think the last song on the album, Known Will Be Here, is mm. what I think it's probably one of the the, of the probably the most club ready track on the album. It's so euphoric and it's a perfect high energy closer to the album. Because as you say, there's these different moments of ambience and then the first five songs which are really, really heavy, and it kind of goes up and down and then ending on Known Will Be Here I think is yes yeah, perfect. You don't even you don't need to be in on pills in a club or in a desert island to to, to <laughs> appreciate the euphoric of that song so that one would be probably the one that stands out yeah most
0: one thing I've been thinking about that song right it's always been since Avery kind of broke onto the scene it's always been touted that eventually he'll come up with some kind of live show yeah but Daniel Avery if you're listening right now <laughs> you've got three years to get the live show sorted because then in 2023 you could do a 10 year anniversary of oh, and and can, you, can you imagine finishing the
1: set you're putting the with knowing we'll be oh, here wow. that would be crazy man. you're putting the idea out there in, in the public domain <sighs> Maybe you could take it another level up. and You know the people who kind of go at the, the Royal Albert Hall and do like a classic version, like a classically Ooh. you know, orchestral version of their own album. It could be Drone Logic, except with like a full full orchestra. So that, that would be my... Oh,
0: that I can bad. hear you
1: just absolutely just losing your mind at the thought of that. So yeah, big bucks, Daniel Avery, big bucks. Bring him here. These are our, yeah. our ideas.
0: Moving on to the album as a whole, mm. listening from kind of front to back, I've got an interesting quote from Avery that I'm going to throw at you. Yeah and you can just i'm interested to hear your thoughts so avery talking about the album format says it requires patience you put a record on particularly a vinyl album and you enter into this other world you let this record take you somewhere else when you're giving it your time this idea of the album as a trip or a journey i think is something that can sound really pretentious sometimes Mm. and it's actually the kind of description that I read so much on crap like Resident Advisor reviews (laughs) that ultimately I feel as though it's it's become fairly meaningless as as a statement. Having said that, is Avery chatting rubbish here or does this idea stand up with Drone Logic when you listen to it in its entirety?
1: I think it stands up. I would say that, first off, I think for almost every album, the position the songs are put in the track listing matters. So when people, as you say, like on on Resident Advisor, refer to an, an album being a journey... I would say almost every album is designed at least to try and evoke those feelings of a, of a journey. Just some are more successful than others. Mm. With Daniel Avery, I think he, I think he pulls it off. What, what's, what's your thought? I think
0: the songs on Drone Logic are not interchangeable at all for me. It's, it's about the order and also how certain songs affect the rest of the album. Like if you think about Spring 27 and how mm. that dramatically shifts the tone of the last few songs, If that wasn't there, or if that was in a different spot, the album wouldn't have the same effect. Yeah, Because this kind of goes back to what you were saying about ambient quotas and things like that. (laughs) I'm not trying to say that for an album to be great, it must have a U-turn or a dramatic mood shift, and it needs a certain song to do that. I'm just saying that Avery does
1: that really well and it doesn't come across as a gimmick. It feels organic to me. In a, I was just going to say, in a, in a live setting, right, and, and Daniel Avery mentions it, you're literally bound by what the DJ has chosen. So you are letting them dictate how you'll feel. You're putting essentially like a not an insubstantial amount of time of your life into the hands of someone else. So when you do that, there's this tacit commitment to just kind of going along with the flow and being unresisting when a DJ tries to take yeah. you on a journey. The same thing as when you put on a record, like a physical record you are investing your time in, all right, well, I've put it on, you know, I've had to, whatever, um, take it out of the sleeve, blah, 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 take it out of the collection. Yeah. There's a there's a practical time you're investing that makes it that you want to engage in the journey. When you're listening on your phone and or, you know, for your headphones, there is no such practical commitment to listening to the whole album. So when you stick on a song, there is nothing to stop you going, completely changing what how you want to feel and what you want to hear. But yet with this yeah. album, with Daniel Avery, I feel it's one of those ones where you put on a song or a song comes up and shuffle, you think, Oh, I'm going to listen to the whole thing so the fact that he pulls that yeah, off man. even on like a phone in that kind of digital environment absolute credit to him it does say a lot yeah should
0: we move on to the next segment Apex definitely so yeah for this section let's pretend that Avery's career is kind of laid out before as like a landscape obviously he's not been active for that long so mm. there might not be as many peaks and troughs as many successes and failures as some other of the artists that we're going to be looking at Basically, where do we think Drone Logic sits? Is it his best work or is it more likely to be swamped by rising sea levels (laughs) in the next few years? I'm gonna give a quick overview of his discography for Mm. those that maybe aren't totally familiar. So Avery's released two solo albums, Drone Logic and then Song for Alpha in 2018. And earlier this year, he also released another full length record, but that was a collaboration with Alessandro Cortini from the Nine Inch Nails. Mm. And he's also released two remix and B-side albums. For the sake of the Apex argument, Jamie, Uh I don't think that we should be considering his remix and B-side albums as good as they are, Uh purely because they aren't strictly all his own work. And whilst I respect the fact he's made an ambient album and chosen to kind of develop that side of his sound, I don't think it's on the same level as Song for Alpha and Drone Logic. So the big question is,
1: Which of those two albums do you think is his peak? Okay, so I'm going to preface this by saying I don't have the level of emotional attachment you do to Drone Logic or Daniel (laughs) Avery generally, so maybe I can claim a level of objectivity that that you can't, I'm not sure. Someone else will have to be the, the judge of that. For me, a month ago, if you'd asked me this question, I would have said Drone Logic without any hesitation. Because I'd only really listened to Song for Alpha a couple of times when it came out and I wasn't particularly blown away. Listening back to it a lot more over the past week or so, I think that album is great. I think it's mm. more mature, more sophisticated. It has a more spacious kind of feeling to it, whereas I think with Drone Logic it's quite club ready and utilitarian. Song for Alpha is a lot more meditative, I suppose. Yeah. Even though it's more, you know, less banger orientated, whatever you want to say. I think it's a more sophisticated album, but I'm not necessarily ready to say it's better because I have a lot more fun, but you know, quote unquote, listening to Drone Logic. Mm. What do you think initially based on, on that? Met, I find it really interesting
0: that you've said it's more meditative mm. because from what I understand that kind of comes back to the process behind making the albums. Okay. So when he was making Drone Logic, apparently for the majority of the time he had room one fabric in his mind, like this <laughs> these songs are gonna knock in the club. Yeah, yeah. Whereas when he was making song for Alpha, he kind of viewed his studio time as a release and a bit of like a downtime from yeah. the hectic weekend. So he, he's playing all these mad gigs around Europe. And then when he comes back to the shipping container, it's almost like, you know, take a breath, release. Mm. And um, I think that's where the softer sounds come from. Mm. There is there is definitely like still a nightclub element to Song for Alpha. Like, yeah. I mean, Diminuendo, With for example. That's his heaviest it's song like, ever, right? <laughs> interestingly, the, the Luke Slater remix of that on... The B sides album, I somehow takes makes it even heavier. Like I, I don't understand how that's physically possible, but yeah. the guy managed it. As you say, I have something of an attachment, <laughs> nostalgic attachment. So maybe, as you say, I'm not the most subjective person. I really, really like
1: Song for Alpha, mm. but I still think Drone Logic is his best album so far. See, this is this is I think the most important thing. I think it's a Probably a bit hasty for us to say that you know the apex of Daniel Avery's career is his debut that he made. I'm not sure how old was he. He wasn't mid to late in his twenties. Yeah. yeah, it's his absolute apex. I would expect and maybe hope if his career becomes not maybe on the level of uh, the level of an Andrew Everall but career continues to develop, that maybe he'll have an album mm. that comes in the future that really is well the one that people think, wow, this is are going to be a seminal record in the the canon of electronic yeah. music to come. Because I think the way he's been developing so far suggests that that is quite possible. It's possible. Yeah.
0: Let's say are we going to agree that Drone Logic the peak for now, but we're entering uncharted territory where he could climb even higher.
1: I would say the tectonic plates are grinding away to make a, <laughs> a fucking forced uh, um geographical analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Ge- Geography GCSE
0: coming through strong Bosh. there, lad. I think it would be a shame if we didn't mention briefly the remix albums. I don't know how much you've listened to them. Mm, I've listened to them. Um but generally I think if I looked at an artist that had released five albums mm. and two of them had been <laughs> remix albums. I think I kind of judged that with some suspicion. But, de- <laughs> but Avery's albums are definitely worth digging into. Yeah. Have you got a kind of favourite track off those two?
1: As you say, I think there's. They, are, they have a lot of depth and they can be quite rewarding if you do delve into them. I think Roman Flugel's remix of All I Need is probably, to me, the favorite remix of mine, at least from the Drone Logic remixes. I think it somehow takes a really, really funky, danceable song and then takes it up to another level. I, hearing that in a club really would set things off. The, the way that builds and, and goes up and down yeah. is amazing.
0: Polish remix of Free Floating. I bought that in a record store when I was like 18 mm. and I've heard it out a few times and I think I actually prefer that to the original. So yeah, I'd probably go with that one. Yeah. Another question I actually want to ask you on the topic of remix albums. I just think generally, sometimes you just think, why on earth did this need to be made? Yeah. I, I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head. Well. Have you got any? Like you just listened to it and thought, what the heck were these thinking when they put
1: this together? I mean, I'm convinced that to be honest, 90 of remixes ever made don't need to happen, and that applies to all genres, not just electronic music, where maybe there has a bit more value. The other day, I was on Spotify, on Spotify social tab on on the side, someone, a friend of mine, was listening to a a fucking remix of Soccer Mummy's song, "Circle the Drain." It was remixed by Andrew Van weingarten of MGMT fames I was like, who the fuck asked for this? Like, why do we need a remix of an indie song by another indie artist and just this really? Really bland way I think as you say Daniel Avery avoids this for the most part but honestly all the remixes yeah. out there like 90% of them just don't need to happen like every mashup that has been done between like I don't know some kind of obscure like 80s song with some other with Justin Timberlake or whatever just like, don't just stop doing it well, yeah I, I mean I, I used to make quite a few mashups on virtual DJ <laughs> I, day, I forgot so, about that actually. maybe we should release those uh, yeah we'll, we'll put that out put them out on, uh, on Instagram I, I reckon now we've committed to it so I'd like to see that Moving
0: on to our uh, penultimate segment, Mm. Alternate Cuts, as I mentioned in the introduction, Avery is a successful DJ as well, so we thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about his career in that field also. Alternate Cuts is obviously the segment where we're trying to engage with major criticisms that surround the artist and reflect how they might impact how we enjoy the album. Occasionally we'll even throw out our own thoughts or cuts and just see if there's anything that from wider culture that forces us to reconsider the record. Mm. Avery is a successful DJ. And a lot of the time, I think there's a valid belief that these skills need to be demarcated. I mean, how often do you hear things like, just because they're a good producer doesn't make them a good DJ yeah. and vice versa. Mm. But I think with Avery, to some extent, the two kind of inform each other. And he's spoken about this himself. So. I'm quoting here, I've been really interested over the past few years in playing all night long, eight, nine, ten hours. I'm fascinated with building the atmosphere from the ground up. This goes back to the idea of it all coming from the same place. As long as you can draw a line between all of these records, why aren't they existing in the same space? That's something I wanted to push on the album. It all works together. It all has a common goal. Mm. Clearly, it isn't absolutely necessary that you produce good music to be a successful DJ. Ben UFO is one example off the top of my head, which obviously suggests that they are different skills. But in the case of Avery, I think there is something mutually beneficial. I think that the music he makes, the albums he releases, are influenced by his DJ sets, and vice versa. Do you know what I'm getting at, or am I? Do you think I'm being a bit tenuous?
1: No, I, I definitely know what you get it. You're getting at. I just think it's such a difficult thing to try and explain. You know, we talked about track listing earlier, but I think this goes way beyond this. There is definitely a relationship, but I'm wondering, Oli, what do you think is? You know, what exactly is mutually beneficial between being a DJ? And being a producer, like, what did you notice when you've seen him do live DJ sets? When I've seen him play in the past, what struck me the
0: most is he has a real awareness for where each track lies in a set. Mm-hmm. So noises from half an hour ago feel relevant now. Yeah. Where I am now affects where I am in heart, in you know an hour's time. Uh-huh. And there's a there's a relationship beyond like a linear track by track basis. There's thought behind. How everything is kind of working cohesively. Mm. It sounds super cliche to say it, but it does suck you into a world. I saw him play at festival like six, seven years ago for, it was quite long, it was like four hours. And for the first hour, all he played was ambient drone beatless music. Mm. And if you think that's, that's takes some bottle, yeah, I think, to do at a festival at study, as well. Yeah. yeah, like we could have gone see like Basement Jacks, Bonobo, Caribou, Out like Outkast, like, anything like that to have the belief that, okay, these people are gonna stick with me and I'll ratchet the pressure up bit by bit to the point where all the brakes are off. To me, it's only obvious that in that situation, the music's mm. gonna feel a lot more intense than if he'd just gone hammers and tongs from the start. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah. that kind of appreciation of how the set works as a whole is something that I see in his albums quite a lot. I mean, we're talking about how Drone Logic is a kind of trip or a journey. And I think that kind of gets at
1: what I'm saying. Yeah, well, I think you've put it really well. And obviously it's always quite difficult when you try and reduce DJing as of any art form, you can end up being a bit reductive. But I think what you're talking about, right, with this, this sense of building and releasing pressure. So the payoff, if you've done an hour of beatless music, that has really ratcheted up this pressure that's existing in the crowd to mm-hmm. then release, it, it's way, way more substantial. And I think, as you say, there's this relationship he has, in his albums at least, between a song that has happened half an hour ago that you know it has to make causal sense not just because what's coming before and after it, but what is you know going to come in an hour and has come mm. an hour before and especially in his all night long sets. I would say that I guess with DJing the most well, one of the most important things is understanding people's and cultural relationships to sounds, right? So, you know, how these sounds are gonna interact, interact not just in forms of the music of them, but how people perceive them and see them in relating to to the rest of the music that's yeah. been released. So I think he gets that on a on another like level without without a doubt. What I would ask you is that clearly it has, you know, you've made a great argument that his his DJing informs his production. Well then why is it that there's so many DJs out there who can, you know, produce good EPs, make good club tracks, but then when they come to an album, they just don't manage it. They just don't manage it and I don't understand.
0: I feel like sometimes it can be a little bit of a poison chalice for producers. Because as you say, they've had Maybe they've had quite a few successful releases, but then it seems as though for, quote-unquote, the album, things have to be changed slightly. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like some approach it like a an extended EP of just like strictly club-focused yeah. focused music, or they go the other way and go like beatless and ambient to show, quote-unquote, you know, a softer side or something like that. I sense from your voice, are there any that you think, producers maybe that haven't done such a great job with the album?
1: I mean, someone I was just thinking of when you were saying, you know, this choice between whether you go for the full album worth of club bangers or you go for an album that's completely ambient. The Shanti Celeste, who's a DJ that we both love and have really enjoyed Mm. whenever we've seen her play, her last album, or her debut album, The Tangerine, it wasn't bad, but it was just, it suffered from... It's like he it didn't know whether to go full on club music or go full beatless and ambient, and then it just ended up being this middling thing that was a bit of the one and a bit of the other, didn't really have much energy, and just didn't have any of the immediacy of her you know singles that have been released as, as just tracks for you know for DJ sets. Yeah. And I think it just what it shows is that it's really, really, really hard to make a consistent and re-listenable electronic album in a way that maybe isn't with you know pop or, or, or guitar music. Are there any that stand out to you as well? Kay Loans album
0: from March this year, Cape Sierra. I've really, really enjoyed that. If, if people on the podcast maybe haven't given that a listen, mm. definitely check that out. The other one in the last few years I've really enjoyed is by Kelly Lee Owens, who actually does all the vocals on Drone Logic. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and her and Avery used to work together in a record store in London. And I don't know, there's there's definite similarities, I think, between her record and Drone Logic. So yeah, those are a couple that I feel have done it done it justice, let's say. Moving on in our alternate cuts segment, I thought we could spend a little bit of time just kind of discussing DJ culture in general. Fortunately, Daniel Avery isn't, he's never really in bad press, as it were. It seems like, you know, sometimes you hear horror stories about DJs being completely unmanageable or horrendous rider requirements and things like that. I haven't read anything like that about him mm-hmm. per se. But I just thought it'd be funny if we could talk a little bit about how some DJs are perceived as kind of pre-Madonnas. Have
1: you got any nightmare stories that you want to share? Well, there was the one from a couple of years ago that really blew up, not just in music press, um, but I'd say beyond that as well. Uh, I remember The Tab did an article about it, which is really just a a testament. If if The Tab does a news story about something, then it truly has reached the kind of monocultural level. Um, (laughs) But Jeremy Underground, who by all accounts had Up this persona of being, you know, well, his name is Jeremy Underground. So something called Sauna Gate happened. So basically a small Edinburgh promoter were putting on a party. I I remember this, I remember this. They were putting on a party and they they booked Jeremy Underground. And then when it came to booking his accommodation, they booked him into quite an expensive four-star hotel, but he didn't approve of it because it didn't have a gym and a sauna, so it wasn't a five-star hotel. So he wanted a room at somewhere called the Sheraton Grand, where the room prices were £614 a night. That's the where they begin. So essentially, it led him to led to the promoters cancelling his set. The agent that Jeremy Undergram was working with sent abusive messages. Um, some of those messages they were re- they were really bad. Well, I remember. I can read some out for you, Ollie. They are they're worse than I remember. I'll, I'll read them out with the kind of spelling mistakes, in all their glory. So, I consider you as a fucker now. I am going to bite you, and believe me, you are going to lose some blood so like and that email like four people are cc'd into it and the screenshots it's like can can you imagine opening up like a cc'd email and it's some guy being like i'm going to bite you now anyway so it went viral as i said and and even though this kind of stuff i think probably happens quite quite a lot people were absolutely aghast at it that it happened which may be a bit naive but anyway all this got me thinking about as you say dj culture and and the And as a funny and maybe slightly oblivious way to illustrate this point, the 2015 film We Are Your Friends, Ollie. So to those of you who haven't seen it, it follows a DJ oh, yeah, played, yeah. By, played by Zac Efron on his kind of frankly obscene journey towards success. Um, we'll play a clip from <laughs> see it. I've seen the trailer for this. Yeah. yeah, I'll play you a clip from it. It also um, features Emily Raskowski um, and really it has to be seen or, or heard to be believed. Hey, you know, this party's looking a little stiff. So what are you saying? You need to amp it up?
0: I mean, you can try. It's the DJ's job to get the crowd out of their heads and into their bodies. I like to start them off at about 125 beats per minute. Once you've locked onto their heart rate, you start bringing them up song by song. 128 beats per minute,
1: that's the magic number. Yeah, so there you go. Flipping act, man. I've never actually watched the whole film, so I'm I'm, I'm judging it based on just some clips I've seen on YouTube. But wow, <laughs> wow. Anyway, yeah, we aren't going to go into too much detail on that particular topic. But I know me and you, Oli, have some good stories from various volunteering experiences at, at music festivals. So, yeah. what kind of thing have you encountered with with DJs?
0: Oh, I don't know, man. I mean. I remember we were working at a music festival in Detroit a few years ago, and we're in a kind of weird position to be looking through people's riders, trying to set things up. (laughs) And I remember, I think Seth Troxler it was, they had all the kind of hospitality, all the hotel, whatever. Yeah. And then the weirdest thing was it was, and along with the mixer and the turntables, I need a fresh, clean, white pair of socks at the back yeah. of the stage. And I was kind of like, who, why, why do you need to change your socks during the yeah. set? But, I mean, Seth Droxler is. But then there's some other ones that kind of, you know, restore your faith in humanity. Like, if, if I remember, we had a little look through one of Honey's ones. And I was kind of thinking, oh, if this has some bad stuff in it, then what am I going to do? Because he just seems like quite a lovely chap. He's Mm -hmm. always smiling. And funnily enough, on his rider, it said, a big lovely smile would be appreciated when greeting at the airport or something like that. (laughs) That's so lovely. He's such a heartwarming guy. How nice is that? And then another one with Ben UFO was, you know, just a few beers. If I'm playing longer than four hours... Some bananas in a cereal bar. What straight
1: up? What legend? Yeah, I mean, both of those like, just plays like, into exactly what I would expect Ben UFO and who you both to be like. So that, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah, stuff, stuff your white socks. Exactly.
0: Anyway, let's finish up the podcast as we usually do by moving on to the album cover nightclub. I know you love this section. I Jen. do. I'm excited to have you back uh, doing the hosting of it. So as always, we end our podcast by imagining a situation where the album cover, in this case, Drone Logic is trying to get into a nightclub. The artwork is being judged on a few different criteria. Originality, harmony between music and artwork, aesthetics, and whether or not it could be considered iconic. Hmm. So not its ID, not what it's been chatting in the queue, etc, etc. There's four ranks. GOAT, straight in, highest level Hall of Fame. VIP, have its own table in the club. Ticket on the door, just about sneaking in. Name's not down, not coming in. Get home, get lost. (laughs) So Drone Logic, Jamie, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the cover. Mm. It's actually a watercolour painting by an artist and illustrator called Kate Copeland. Okay. Um, And she actually did a few of Avery's early releases on fantasy, water jump, and Need Electric. But basically, it's just a very simple black and white painting. And apparently, this kind of coincided with his vision from the start that all he wanted was a kind of monochrome, stark artwork, more reminiscent of a kind of you know, a grunge album rather than a contemporary electronic artist. Mm. In this situation, you and I are the bouncers. I've had my eye on this guy, this record, (laughs) since it came in, Daniel Avery. I've been forming an opinion ever since, but what I want to know is your thoughts first. What do you
1: think? Okay, so from a distance, if I'm seeing this album cover in the queue, I think it's well-dressed, it's sleek, it has an edge to it. It's the kind of album cover that might get into Bergheim quite easily, I would suggest. I would almost go as far to say that it has it becomes slightly iconic, um, I mean I've seen quite a few people, including you, um, wearing it on a t-shirt. Oh that's my brother actually. Oh was it your brother? Sorry, think, yeah. it was your brother, I get, I get you confused. Um, so I would say, I think it's getting in for sure, but I also, I'm not about to you know, roll out the red carpet, what do you reckon? Right. First what of is all, coming really here like are, you to, are you about to you about to I am launching go. this here argument go. here you know. here we go
0: first of all I like the simple painting I think it works uh-huh. number two I really like the kind of mysterious shadowy figure down on the left because when I when I saw that when I was younger I always used to wonder oh so is that the voice, this kind of repeated echo throughout the album? So I feel like that kind of ties Times in the
1: concept. Like,
0: quite nicely. Like it. It's also just a little bit different. I feel like a lot of electronic music has to have, or feels it has to have, kind of like flashy logos, bright colours, all mm. this kind of crazy graphic design. This is just a black and white painting. It's really sleek.
1: I, it's really, yeah. yeah.
0: I just think it's a perfect visual accompaniment to the album. Like if I had to kind of picture in my mind's eye, what a song like Platform Zero or Spring 27 would look like, that is probably quite close to the sort of thing that I'd make up in my own head. Basically, it's very difficult for an album that came out seven years ago to have GOAT status, and Drone Logic is not on that level.
1: Thank you, I've got got a bit breathless for a second there. It's VIP, and I'm not hearing you say anything otherwise. You know what? I think your point about the harmony between what the music sounds like and the album cover is on point when I, when you hear this album especially those first three tracks I can't help but think of the album cover so you know what fucking get out the Belvedere get, yes. get them out get them a table get the Daniel Avery come on in get the maitre d looking after them um, yeah give him a VIP he's definitely in he's
0: in the Hall of Fame he's VIP nice one well yeah that brings an end to Drone
1: Logic hope you've enjoyed the podcast yeah I hope you had a good time guys and see you next week